Hello, I'm Ray Wright, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Brewster Kale, the founder and digital librarian at the Internet Archive, home of the Wayback Machine, and an inductee into the Internet Hall of Fame. Today, we will be covering three main topics. One, the inspiration to launch the Internet Archive, the world's largest digital library. Two, the story behind the Wayback Machine. And three, the magnitude of the efforts to support the vision of the Internet Archive. Brewster, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Ray, thank you very much for inviting me on this. This is this is just completely fun. And this is for people that are listening. Ray is this inspiring fellow in the Bay Area and happens to be my neighbor. And so we've gotten to know each other basically personally and sort of sharing sort of our general approaches towards how to make a big difference. And so, Ray, thank you very much for, for this opportunity. For me, um, I'm a geek. I, I started out with sort of a technical background, and the idea was to try to figure out a way that you could use that to do good, right? To do something you'd be proud of, something that would last a long time for others, but also be a, a long-term trajectory. So I thought, okay, can we just build that library of Alexandria version two? Can we make the internet, which didn't exist yet, into that vision of access to information? That seemed like something we could do with our computers that had been promised for a long time, even by 1980. And so by 1980s, okay, let's go and do this. So I went and worked with Marvin Minsky at the Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT with Danny Hillis specifically to go and try to figure out how you could make all of this go. The connection machine, which is a supercomputer, was the only thing that could be big enough to be able to store, well, all of human knowledge. And just to give you an idea, that original connection machine was 32 megabytes of RAM. And we built the first RAID system disk drive that was five gigabytes and that was enormous at that time so that was a stepping stone towards getting things to work for getting information online making it searchably easily uh, and going so i had to learn chips how to make boards uh, operating system for a parallel computer that kind of thing to try to get that to launch then I found that really we needed a mechanism of getting it distributed and the telco systems were just not making it. And, you know, this was the time in the early 80s, you know, you had Apple talk for trying to communicate between your, your punky little floppy drive driven PC or Macintosh to try to get it to your printer. I mean, it's just like, no, this is not going to work. And the ARPANET was coming around and that seemed like just the right infrastructure, but it was coming out of the defense department. So trying to get that over the line into general use, I could go and build a, an application on it. And I built Waze, wider information service, called a claim to fame. Maybe the reason why I'm in the Internet Hall of Fame is I did the first information system, publishing system on the internet before the World Wide Web, called Waze, wider information servers. And by the time Tim's system was really getting popular, then it wove the search part, which is Waze, 
into itself. And so we're all using the web, which is just tremendous. Anyway, steps along the way, I started a company called Ways Incorporated, sold it to America Online to try to get publishers to take the internet seriously, and then went to build the Alexa Internet, which was sold to Amazon.com and the Internet Archive, a nonprofit library for the internet. Anyway, so that's sort of the brief, the idea is to try to think big. Right? That was the thing that Marvin Minsky and Danny Hillis said, think big, go for your dream. And even if you're not going to be the one that achieves it in your lifetime, I think achieving your dream is overrated. What you want is a direction. And so the idea of universal access to all knowledge, that was the direction that I have been pursuing for 40 years now. And I, you know, it's a little chagrin that we're not any further than we are now. And in fact, some of the things are really turning backwards towards corporate control, government regulation, copyrights that are getting stronger and stronger. It's actually, in some sense, we're retrograde. In some sense, we're making progress. Brewster, let's dig into some of the things you shared there in your introduction. So, you know, today we take so much for granted and boy, 4G is not fast enough. So 5G satellite is going to change everything. But for 40 years, you've had artificial intelligence in your background, it was foundational, right? The work you did with Marvin Minsky. What do you think about today's, all the hype around AI, maybe without an appreciation for the groundwork that people like you and Marvin laid 40, 50 years ago? Oh, we're finally seeing results out of all of that work. I mean, the catapulting forward based on the machine learning structures is just fantastic. And it's really a revolution. I mean, when the older programming models were when you actually a procedural programming and you knew exactly what was going on. Now we've got these much more statistical things based on the data that we're throwing in. And it sort of comes up with answers that we don't quite understand why. George Dyson is putting it that we're kind of returning to nature from before the sort of industrial age of mechanics where you could go and know why everything was happening. We're now having to sort of pull back and it's kind of fuzzier. And it's interesting and extremely productive, but it requires big data. I believe I coined the term big data as a riff on big science, which was a, uh, an album by Laurie Anderson in the 80s. And the idea of big data is we needed a lot of information for our machines. And back in the 1980s, it was clear we were data starved that we needed more information. If we're going to bring up our new overlords, if the AIs are going to basically take a strong position in terms of how society runs, then let's have it read good books. Let's make sure that it learns from the best that we have. And those are sort of the heady days of AI. We're sort of thinking of it as Skynet or whatever. And really it's become much more blended so that the combination of people, computers, and information are all working symbiotically with each other. But the key thing was access to data. And that was what I set out to try to do by digitizing whole libraries, putting them online, collecting the World Wide Web at a billion pages a day, collecting television now, just to try to make it so that we could use these for these new and different uses. Unfortunately, it's really hard to go and use petabytes of data. When people talk about big data, often they're talking about a lot of data points you know, billions of data points, but that's still small amounts of data. It's not like really grappling with a large amount of text or video. And some people are in some of the big corporations, but can we democratize that? Can we make it so that every computer science student, anybody playing at home can go and 
take out a library of a million books and play with it. That's what we're finding is the tools that are becoming available in Python and the like, and some of these GPU-based systems are making it so we can play, finally play. Well, well, your goal of holding all the world's information is quite frankly, a pretty big vision. And I would say audacious, right? But let's tell the audience a little bit about how big that really is. So the Internet Archive has been around for what, 24, 25 years now? Yep. 24 years old when we started collecting the World Wide Web uh, with a joint project with the Smithsonian and the Library of Congress and the like, because all this stuff revolves around copyright. And so we now have uh, 500 billion web pages. It's a little hard to kind of understand that, but it's growing at almost a billion URLs, or I think it's over a billion URLs a day. We digitize about 3,000 books every day. It's about 70 petabytes of data. It was mega, giga, tera, peta. So it's 70 petabytes of storage that's stored on multiple machines in multiple locations to try to build some redundancy. There's millions of books, music, and videos. We have maybe 5 million books, 28 million texts. I mean, it's actually, it's hard to kind of imagine. We're about the 300th most popular website. We have 1.5 million visitors to the website. We get IP addresses from about four to five million people a day that are coming and using the Internet Archives resources. We just want it to become plumbing. So and we're linked into the Wikipedia, I, I guess, is maybe one of the easiest ways to sort of understand. If you want to go deeper than a Wikipedia article, there are little footnotes in the bottom. A lot of those link to us. We've gone and fixed 13 million broken links in Wikipedia and, and put them into the Wayback Machine. But we're now also subbing out the books that were just dead links and making them link right up to the right page of a book. So archive.org, all the services are free where user donations, how the place lives. Also, there are libraries that pay us money to go and collect web pages or digitize for us. But basically, we are user-based, like Wikipedia, right? The end of the year, or NPR, where you go around and say, please. So we're in the end of year donation season, and people are donating, which is really gratifying that people want universal access to all knowledge. Yeah, a lot of the people I talk to, they've heard of the Wayback Machine. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the breadth of your digital assets, it's not just web pages. It's all types of media. Was that always your vision was to include all types of media and turn it into digital? Or was it started with web pages? Oh, it started with everything. Yeah, yeah. Get the library online. And then the wonderful thing about the web is it's really simple. The bad thing about the web is it's really simple. I mean, it just... It's, it's kind of fundamentally architecturally broken, and it revolves around one website having key information, which is the wrong number. One is the wrong number. In the library system, you think of it as, you know, there's a publisher. They make a bunch of books. They sell them to libraries and individuals. And even if one of those libraries burn down, then you're, you're still good. But on the web, you nuke one part of the web, and that website's gone. So the idea of having a Wayback Machine is a kludge built on top of the web to try to make it so that at least it doesn't go away. And it turns out, you know, the Wayback Machine is kind of the hello world of what you do with a web archive. What you really want to do is something like Google or all sorts of vertical search engines. So we want more and more different applications built on top of it. And the Wayback Machine has just turned out to be hard enough as it is. It gets about two to 3,000 queries per second from end users using it so much. And it's used by journalists to go and, oh, expose what you know uh, politicians might be trying to sweep under the carpet or that kind of thing. So it's even just the simple Wayback Machine has turned out to be 
challenging enough to try to build up. It's an index of these billions of web pages that is stored on Linux machines that is just binary searched by every query that comes in to find, okay, I have this URL, find me uh, the date ranges that you have, and then serve those back and people pick between them. So it's a very simple index system. And the only way to make that work is flat files. You know, the idea of putting it all in a database is just not going to work. And it's been working well for us for now 20 years that it's been up. Well, you were non-SQL before non-SQL became a common term, huh? <laughs> yes. Now, the size, 70 petabytes. Brewster, are there any other databases out there that are as big as yours? Because it seems like it's got to be one of, if not the world's largest data storage. No, and people are accumulating that much data all the time. The AWS guys talked to the head of AWS, and uh, he just said, we don't even count petabytes anymore. They count exabytes. They're installing this stuff at such a velocity. The tough part is making this stuff useful. Keeping it indexed, keeping it active is really challenging. It's easy to actually accumulate a lot of data. And often it's, I don't know, fumes or toxic waste that's often got too much private data. So really trying to keep control of data is really the trick. But the web collection is the biggest by far. Well, about half of that 70 petabytes. We have a lot of television. And right now, the only real use for that television, you can go to tv.archive.org and search based on what people said by using the closed captions and automatic speech recognition and pull back clips of what people have talked about, which is the only way to think critically. If you think about it, when we were in high school, when we had to write papers, to think critically, you had to quote, compare, and contrast. You had to go and pull what people had said in those newspapers or whatever, and then be able to compare and contrast. If you can't quote something, if you can't hold on to it, it's as if it just flows by and you can't really know what it is, what was said. You were just affected, but you have no recourse. That is a very dangerous state of affairs where if you can just put things across and you can't hold on to it and hold people accountable for it, then people can freely just make things up. And you know what? People are just making things up. So the idea of having an account of television, of what was promised on web pages, what was promoted in books or magazines is absolutely critical. So the idea is to have everything. We mostly start with what's going forward. So that's why we started with the web and television and radio. And now we're going backwards for books and papers and magazines, newspapers, and trying to make that all accessible to end users, not just those in elite organizations, the Wikipedia generation, but also to the data miners of the future. That's where the real exciting parts are. Richard, I know you used a lot of web crawlers to really automate that with bots, right? To collect all those web pages. Are you finding it more difficult? Are people trying to block those bots today so it makes it harder for you to archive the website information? Yes. Basically, crawling the web is harder and harder and harder. We run about 3,000 different crawls with different mandates each day. And these are mandates that are given by librarians in about 600 organizations now, as well as broad sweeps of the web and trying to concentrate on news or let's find the YouTube that makes sense or trying to get some of the social media. Those sorts of crawls are all actively engaged. 
And we're finding that now that we're getting towards these large platforms, they really don't want to be crawled. There's, you know, big players that you know of that are interested in basically replacing the web with their own closed gardens, their own controlled worlds where they hold all the keys. It's the AOL that we defeated in the uh, 1990s and opened it up to the broad web. And now we're back to platforms. So it's going to be a struggle in both technology, but also in law. So going and being able to keep these files available is also really challenging. We're working with a group called Ruffle to go. They went and reverse engineered the Flash format. So Flash was really key for a lot of us that grew up in the 90s where we that was kind of our go-to games, little animations and fun things. But Adobe's not supporting it come January of next year. So how do we go and keep these materials available? And no, there's copyright issues. There's uh, the proprietary aspects of the flash format. How do we go and make all of this work on an ongoing basis when media, it's not like things are written on paper anymore, which might last for a long time. They're written on then microfilm, then CD-ROMs, then floppies, and now just this internet formats and they go obsolete very quickly. So there's real challenges towards keeping these millions, hundreds of millions, billions of things usable in the world. And if we ever let them drop, it's like a baton being dropped in a relay race and we could lose the work of millions of people. Wow, this is stimulating so many thoughts. You said something else that I wanted to dive a little deeper on. So you will make all this information, the metadata available to developers. So are you saying an organization that wanted to create a solution that's based upon, let's say it's TV coverage of politics around the world and have it for every year, they could actually work with you and collect all that archived information and build a site that does that? Within uh, law constraints or policy constraints, and those are tricky at this point, it's easier for us to work with academics or non-commercial use, but there are things that are starting to become known. When Google was sued by publishers and authors, court said, no, the idea of a commercial company going and digitizing books and using them for non-consumptive use is okay to do. So we're encouraged by that, by the courts, the publishers and authors groups are playing the role that they tend to play. But this balance of going and making it so that there are fair uses, that there's continuing to be public interest use in this rather than just full-on corporate control, that balance is still holding up in the United States. So we can't just say yes to everything, but we're trying to find mechanisms for people to do non-consumptive research on these large data sets. On the television, for instance, there's this researcher named Caleb who's taken all of the words that are spoken on US television news and then used Google cloud services that have been donated by Google to go and make it so you could search and find what are the words and phrases how are they being used differently on different channels? So you can understand the different biases of Fox versus MSNBC versus CNN and the like. And it just shouts out at you. You can take a macroscopic view. My friend Jesse Osabel said, you know, with science, we got really far with a microscope. What we need is a macroscope. Allows you to step back and take a bigger picture of what's going on. And I think Caleb's tool allows you to take a bigger picture of what's going on on television and the biases and the bubbles that we're suffering from in our society now. Yeah, I know one of the favorite things that the archive did was on an anniversary of 9-11, you had all this news coverage from around the world of what particular stations and countries were saying about the tragedy. That was an amazing concept. You still do a lot of things like that? 
Oh, absolutely. So September 11, 2001, there was the events in different places in the United States and people were trying to figure out what was going on. You know, did other countries hate the United States? What was the United States going to do? So on October 11th, one month from then, 2001, we put up one week of television from 40 places around the world, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Iraqi, a US news from that whole week to go and see it unfold. And we did that one month after all of that. And this was years before YouTube. It was actually technologically difficult to do, but also we were worried people would react to it, especially the television broadcasters, but everybody was happy with it. And it really helped people get a broader view that, yeah, people were with us. And it was interesting just during that week to see the shaping of the idea that it was terrorists doing it. And there was a war on terror. It didn't take the Republicans very long to go and shape that narrative. It could have gone very different ways. And if you see sort of how it was being talked about in the first days, it could have gone a very different way than sort of an endless war on a faceless enemy. It could have been much more localized, but it's only by having these kinds of resources, can you step back and try to understand it. And we were the only ones that at least made it available, but I think we're are the only ones that had it. Well, you talked about what Kayla's doing, right? To see all sides of how a particular news topic is being covered. And we know that disinformation is such a serious issue that we face in society today. But how can Internet Archive help really identify disinformation almost in real time before a narrative is informed versus looking back on it a week later or six months later? Can you be more proactive in identifying and calling out disinformation? We try to play our role. A library, often, it tries to give information with context, and it tries to make information available in such a way that people can understand what they're looking at. And what they're looking at might not be within that document. It might be from other sources. And so putting those forward to allow people to understand what they're looking at is really absolutely critical. And has it been changed? Has it been around for a long time? Am I reading something new or is this just a meme that's been bounced around, right? How do you make those judgments? And the, a library that has past copies of things and can go and show what's the trajectory of these ideas that are fermenting? Because by the time you see it, it might've been bouncing around in some corner of the web, gathering steam, but be completely fake, right? Something that's just made up. How are you going to come up with that judgment? You're not going to go and just say, oh, well, I'm just going to trust somebody else to say that's fake. It's like, no, where did it come from? How do I know whether what I'm seeing I should trust or not? So I would say provenance is important. And actually the key thing that I think we've done wrong on the internet is we've stripped the internet from the library that we all grew up with. So when I was growing up, you know, you could go into these libraries and there would just be these infinite amounts of information available to me if I slogged my bones into the library. And the librarian would helpfully say, if we don't have it, we can get it for you. That's not how the internet works. We basically have a very thin amount of information being bounced around endlessly. And what I hope we could do and what the Internet Archive can help with is to build up the background information so that you can go deeper on subjects. If you wanted to know the history of the healthcare debate, there's a lot written about it. If you want to know about the rise of fascism during the 20th century, there's a lot written about it, but it's not on the net. And the reason why it's not on the net is because over aggressive copyright regulations. And 
that's really problematic. I mean, right now, going into the public domain is 1925. There's a lot in between 1925 and now that we need to learn from. And we can't just wait for everything to go into the public domain. We need mechanisms to have libraries provide context for what people are looking at. I would say the answer for disinformation or an answer for disinformation is better, reliable, citable information so that a Wikipedia article is going to reference good papers and they're not all behind paywalls that you can't get any access to in such a way that they're now going to just use some blog post instead because you can click on it. That is the dream of the internet. A dream of the internet was to be the library. And in many ways, we're going backwards where we're getting thinner and thinner information being more rapidly gushed out by paying entities, whether it's advertising-based companies or state players that have particular points of view or billion-dollar campaigners, political campaigners that want to put across an idea and paper over all of the underlying background information that could help inform people. Let's make the internet a deeper, more interesting, reflective of the full power of what it is humans have thought of, written about, debated. Not all of it's true, but it's there and we could make it much more available by working together with universities, publishers, authors, and build an internet that is not dumbing down a generation. Well, let's talk a little bit about all those great books or even great research reports that still are covered by copyright law. How do you get over and what have you done to try to say, hey, there was information from 1950. We want to make sure that the public has access to it. How do you get beyond some of those copyright restrictions? It's, it's with a balance. It's with a balance. So publishing and libraries have always worked in parallel. So what libraries do is they buy materials and then they store them, they organize them, and they lend them out. We can do that digitally. So what the Internet Archive, if you go to archive.org or go to openlibrary.org, that's probably the best, openlibrary.org, which is a website operated by the Internet Archive. And you can go and click on a book and read a couple pages. But if you want more of it, you have to borrow it. And if somebody else is borrowing it, then you have to wait. It's weird. It's not kind of as open as you'd kind of want. But it is this balance to go and try to balance commercial interests with what libraries have always done, which is buy, organize, and lend. And that is a way that we've done it. So we've now digitized well over a million modern books and made these available. Now that everybody's homeschoolers, they're using it up a storm. It'll say that it's only available for an hour, but it automatically rolls over to the next hour, next hour, next hour, if nobody's looking for it. And a lot of books, we have more than one copy, so you can borrow a copy for 14 days. And there are now 80 libraries that are all participating by going and lending their books in the same way through the archive.org website. So it is a way of finding a balance that works. That is so cool. So you can go to openlibrary.org. You can look for a textbook that maybe your high school teacher or college professor said to use. And if it's in there, you can lend that out for up to 14 days at no cost. Right. That's what libraries do. We've purchased the uh, materials or they've been donated and we store it. We've digitized it. And then we lend one copy at a time and to one reader at a time. And it is helping out a lot now that we really need access to our libraries digitally. And we want the full breadth, not just the newest bestseller whatevers. We want everything. We need access so that you can do your school reports. You can go and even if you're not in school, how do we go and democratize access to really good information 
so that people are coming up with the best Wikipedia articles, your best blog posts, your best thoughts, and informing your conversations, not just based on what somebody is paying to have you see. So, Brewster, let me ask you a question, because I'm just thinking about the magnitude of digitizing all these books. Do you primarily work with publishers and get digital copies, or do you have to take the physical hard copy book and scan that and digitize it? We buy what we can, we scan what we have to. So we buy EPUBs when they will actually sell them to us. But right now there's this whole cult of licensing where there isn't digital ownership anymore. I mean, you've probably seen this on Netflix where you're watching some series and then suddenly, boom, you can't watch the end of the series because of some license issue. It's like, what is going on here? And it's happening with books. And so the licensing things are strange from some publishers. Others are going great. So PM Press in Oakland, they sold us all of their EPUBs and all of their physical books so that we could hold them and digitize them and lend them, but really sold them. Like actually, you know, selling them to us, not licensing with these weird expiration problems. And so we buy what we can, scan what we have to. And we find that we mostly have to scan books. And so we've gone and, you know, it's weird. I mean, these things are photographs of pages. It feels very retro, but it's all because of sort of this rising corporatization by very, very few big big publishers trying to extend more control. And so I think there's opportunity here for building a better balance than were, you know, the big tech, big publishers sort of monopoly control on things and the control and the government regulators is now becoming glaringly obvious. Let's bring a suite back so that there's more people's interests. There's enough money to go and pay authors and the like. It can work. It has worked for hundreds and hundreds of years. So how do we go and make it work in this digital world? You know, it's funny. It reminds me of almost every physical world industry from music and iTunes really help digitize all that. We have all the movie studios and TV studios and Netflix help really be able to distribute that. So the publishers are going to have to get on board and say, we want to be part of the digitization revolution or get left behind, I would think. Yeah, I think there's this issue of can they just assert more and more control? And I would just like a library system that isn't dramatically worse. I mean, the dream is to make a much better library system. And right now with Google, you can just do a couple quick things and you can find things really fast. It's awesome. But if it's not already online or if it's behind some paywall, then it's just so not there that it's as if it doesn't exist. And if we don't put the best we have to offer within reach of our kids, we're going to get the generation we deserve. And I think that's one of the things that we're really seeing going on within the election systems in the West. Now, some of the rise of disinformation is because there hasn't actually access to the best information. And it's not because some of these publishers want people to just be stupid, but there's starting to be restrictions that have some of these collateral damages. So let's find better balances to make all of this work. Yeah, I know. I remember talking to you so many years ago and your vision for universal access to information was it needs to be in the hands of a nonprofit that has no monetary reason to ever try to apply revenue to it and do it because it helps our society become better. And I think that's a great opportunity to go from visionary of the world's largest digital library to a utopia society. I'm thinking about the blog you put together about the origins of Burning Man, Zone Trip 4, and your vision or at least dialogue stimulation around Zone Trip 5. Can you share that with our listeners? 
Sure. I, I went on the first trip of what became Burning Man, going out in the desert of Nevada with a bunch of bonzos. And we were just had a great time and try to imagine a new world in this desert in 19, 1990. And it was just fantastic. The first year, there was, I don't know, 40 or 80 of us that were out there in the desert. And then it just built and built and built into a new world. Now, imagine what we should do during this pandemic. What's the desirable physical world for a pandemic? How can we rethink things to go and have a new and different world? And I was thinking, you know, physically, like what would be the campus that you would build, that you would have your bubble that you would want to live within? And what would you bring to that bubble world? And it was just a mechanism of stretching our mind a little bit. How do we leverage this pandemic and not just think awful, 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 but what new opportunities? We're all seeing that through Zoom conferences, so we stay off of airplanes. Ray, you used to just always be on an airplane. I think you were on an airplane one or twice a week. And I see you more now in the neighborhood now than ever before. And I think we're, in some senses, more productive. In some senses, we're not making the same connections. So how do we go and rethink some of our structures? What does a university look like now that we're sort of catapulted forward, in some senses, into a much more digital internet world? What do we want to bring forward to build that new universe? I find those sorts of thought experiments often lead to some of the most inspiring visions that people run with, make careers out of, make startups out of, make nonprofits out of, all, all, all good things. Yeah, necessity brings invention, right? And I still remember probably my favorite thing as a result of the pandemic was I got a knock on my door. I think it was back in April. And there's Brewster. And Brewster's like, let's do an outdoor movie night and we'll make it socially distanced. So Brewster and I put up this huge screen between houses. We invited all the neighbors. Brewster actually created these little squares that families or households could be in. It was at least six to eight feet away from the next block. And I'm like, this is my favorite time I think I've ever had in this community. And you're kind of zooming out on a macro level and say, how can we reimagine society? I love the idea, Brewster. Well, let's come up with ideas and build them. I mean, that, that's the wonderful thing about this is we can actually build this new world, not just on, you know, making yet another app that's going to get sold to Google, but make it so that something lasts. Let's, let's dream a little bit. We've still got people that are looking for new and different answers. Right now, people are in the streets protesting. It's not working for them. Let's make a system that works better for people. And you mentioned nonprofits. I think the 501c3 nonprofit in the United States is one of the best ideas the United States has ever come up with. I think the corporation, the class C equity-based corporation, which actually can expand out of control, it's viral in a very interesting and negative way, is maybe not necessarily the best thing that the United States wanted to have sicked on the world. But the 501c3 public nonprofit, it's a some rights reserved. It's like free and open source software of organizations of people. It's an organization that's designed to not be bought. So you can't just acquire groups of people and see your favorite tool. Slack is now owned by Salesforce. What does that mean? I don't know, but why do I have to be thinking about it? So how do we go and make it so that there's nonprofit structures? Can we make a decentralized web where websites live everywhere and nowhere. So the Internet Archive is pioneering and working with lots of others on decentralized technologies, whether it's going from the Bitcoin world to the Filecoin and IPFS, 
but even further than that, to go and make it so that you are invested and in control of your own world. So it's private and reliable. It's fun. And also people can help be able to make money without having to be part of somebody else's platform. I think we've built a world with too few winners. I like games with many winners. And I think we can do that in lots of parts of our lives. If we just try not to build up central points of control, it makes it a much more interesting, evolving world that that's the, the internet that I came from or the computer technology before that, World Wide Web. It's all an evolution that we can go and pursue and it's profitable. It doesn't all have to be unprofitable. Even nonprofits, the Internet Archive is the most successful organization I've ever run and it gives away its product. And they say, how do you make money by giving away product? Well, people want to help you if you're doing something that helps them. So all around, we can make a better world if we keep our vision and our star high, if we keep the North Star in mind, the big picture, we can go and build a better world. You know, I love that North Star concept. A lot of times we tell entrepreneurs, find that North Star for your organization and what metrics say you're achieving that North Star. But for this, I think it's time for our audience to think about, I can make a difference in the world beyond building the next Uber or Twilio or Slack, which by the way, were all built out of the last economic recession. Now coming out of today's pandemic, let's aspire to how can we build a better social construct, a better society for all. With that, Brewster, I'm going to say thank you so much. Your thoughts are so stimulating. And I would invite everyone to look up Brewster Kell's blog because a lot of these, I almost call them streams of consciousness, but I know they're much more thought out than that, Brewster. On your blog, I think it's great for everyone to stimulate their ideas. Archive.org and I'm Brewster at archive.org. Thank you again, Brewster. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Thank you, Ray. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics That Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.